with every publishing business, the cycling media landscape has changed beyond recognition in the past 10 years, with the move away from print to digital platforms. But beyond this, what specifically has changed for both publishers and brands, and how do those on both sides of the business need to adapt to this changing media landscape? I'm joined today by two guests from both the editorial and publishing sides of the debate to explore this in more detail. Let's meet today's guests. I'm joined by Richard Schofield, who's uh, an independent consultant and a formerly uh, publisher of the cycling titles at Future Publishing. Hi, Richard. Hello. And uh, Neil Rogers, who's the US editor of Cycling Tips and uh, longtime editor of uh, Velo News Magazine. Hi, Neil. Hello. Hello. So thanks both for joining me today. I, uh, the subject we're talking about is, is the, you know, the changing media landscape uh, in the bike industry. And I guess this was sort of the reason I wanted to talk about this was, was really due to my experience kind of, I've, you know, from the UK, been in the US a couple of years. I was just a little surprised when I got, you know, spending more time in the US um, some of the differences in the quality of the print publications. And so I wanted to just kind of, you know, get a couple of people from both sides of the debate to, to explore this and some other themes in, in more detail. Um, but, but yeah, this was really came about by looking at, you know, the, the sort of newsstands in the US and the UK. And, um, you know, Neil, I, I, I read Velo News years ago. My dad got a subscription to it when I was about probably 14, 15. Um, and back then it was this, it was this, you know, really thick, meaty, um, editorial heavy publication. And then I guess, you know, over the years, it's sort of thinned down a little bit. And now when I compare it to some of the UK publications, it, you know, it, it does seem a little lightweight. And I guess I'm just curious to explore why that is, is that symptomatic of the, you know, the publishing landscape over here, different challenges, um, What's what's your take on that? Yeah, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think there were sort of a few different reasons. I started at Velo in late 2001, and that was, I think, sort of the end of that era of Velo News as being sort of the source for cycling media for North America. That's not to say that it's not still a source cycling information for North America and around the world. But, you know, there was that period of time sort of throughout the 90s where it was the primary source kind of pre-internet and even as the internet began. You know, I think there are a few reasons. Obviously, the internet has affected all of the media landscape, not just cycling media. Um, And you saw the emergence of cycling news as a very strong online source. So I think that, you know, that's probably number one reason. Um, One of the things that happened sort of in that period of time in the late 90s into the early 2000s is that the mountain biking, which was a big for Vela News in the mid 90s, was a big source of ad revenue, but also editorial content. Interest in that sort of tapered off. And so there was less ad revenue amount by product. There was also sort of just less editorial to go with it. Um, so that just thinned it out naturally. You know, you don't have the ad pages. You don't have as many stories about it. Um, and then there, there was sort of in the mid-decade, I guess, there was, uh, we saw several titles pop up in the U.S. You know, Road Magazine uh, being one of them, Road Bike Action, Peloton. And, you know, from the way that I understand, I've never been on the ad sales side. So I sort of hear 
secondhand, but from what I understand, the way sort of the U.S. cycling industry advertising dollars are distributed is everybody wants to support every media title to a certain extent. And so the pool of ad dollars, every time a new media title pops up, sort of the ad dollars, just the, the slice of pie just gets a little thin, thinner, you know, so you've got guys uh, or, or gals that, you know, who are aver- controlling advertising spends, attract, specialized, giant, whatever you name it. And, you know, if there's five media titles and this is their advertising budget, then it gets split this way. If there are seven media titles, the budget doesn't grow. It just gets uh, spread out a little mm-hmm. bit more evenly. So, um, you know, the, the advertising revenue for everybody as new, t- new media titles come along just sort of gets a little leaner so you know it's sort of a combination of things that mountain biking uh internet uh additional media titles and and that's the situation that we have today yeah i i mean i definitely i want to come back to that that trend of um you know the move from print to digital i guess the other challenge in the u.s that i've learned is sort of just on the publishing side a, a lot of it is based on subscriptions is that fair to say rather than people going into a physical newsstand you know bookseller or whatever and buying a, a copy of the magazine right yeah you know i don't have the exact figures but when i was the editor at Vela News, um, you know, I believe that about 80% of the f- circulation was subscriptions, yeah. maybe more, 85%. I think, Richard, that's maybe one of the big differences with the UK, maybe why some of the print titles uh, are doing much better in the UK, because we have got this sort of newsagent culture, right? We've got, you know, people buy paper yeah. copies of magazines at their local newsagent, their train station on the way to work, that, that sort of thing, right? Yeah, well, it's also the fact that in the US, you know, you publishers actually lose money on circulation. You know, the costs of posting magazines are so high that, um, and, the, and the competition there is so high that the, the cover prices or the cost of subscriptions is actually really low. Um, so you can have this perverse situation where your circulation goes up and you actually lose money. Whereas in the UK, you know, with a, with a decent cover price, yeah, circulation is a really important, you know, probably for most magazines, it's, it's at least half of their revenues. And then, um, you know, as Neil's described, the reliance on advertising isn't quite as, uh, as, isn't quite as desperate as it is maybe in the US market. Yeah, but yeah, the UK. Yeah, the UK cycling uh, print media has actually been yeah pretty healthy. Uh, you know, up until probably the last two years, you know, it's been it's actually been growing. You know, the number of the number of titles has grown, and the individual titles, some of them have uh, you know cycling cycling plus. You know, we're selling. Uh, I've done a little bit of research on these figures. I did look them up rather than having them off the top of my head, but it was selling you know two and a half. Uh, times as many copies as it did last year uh, as it did back in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. I guess part of that is symptomatic of the the, the, the segment of the market that it's aimed at, right? The, the growth in sort of sportifs and people who are new to road biking and that 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 wave of of popularity in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you look at you look at it. You look at mountain bike you mountain biking UK rather. Um, you know, like Neil described in the US and in the UK, there was this massive boom in mountain biking back in the sort of 80s, 90s. And, um, you know, mountain bike, mountain biking UK circulation has halved since the year 2000. So, yeah, a bit a bit more, uh, a bit tougher in, in different sectors. Yeah. But with the, with the growth in the interest in road cycling, that that sector has been remarkably healthy. Yeah. Can I ask, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, to, to ask you a little bit about future because you were obviously... Um, there or thereabouts as they were offloading all of their cycling titles to um, 
to immediate media. I mean, what's your take on that? Was that because they weren't making enough money? Um, they were struggling? Was it, was it other parts of the future business that sort of were bringing it down? Um, because, you know, against the backdrop of the, the UK market, um, appearing to be doing well in you know sort of general cycling terms, it seems strange for them to offload their their sort of crown jewels, right? It was it was purely. I think this is kind of on public record. It was kind of purely about what was going in on in the wider business, and I think at the time, uh, immediate uh, media, you know, valued valued that bit of, that bit of the business very highly. Um, you know, it's a really good good business, and uh, you know, future future needed the. Uh, uh, needed the funds for other parts of its of its operation. So yeah, yeah. And what about um, what about Cyclist Magazine? What was your take on on their success? I mean, they they launched a couple of years ago. They've sort of sprung out of nowhere. Were you were you surprised that a, that a new entrant in the market could could do so well in such a short space of time? No, not surprised at all. Really, I mean, you know, I think you know, there's been, there have been a lot of launches. You know, when 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 Cycling Plus um, kind of started to grow back in the sort of early 2000s you know when when the cycling the road cycling boom kind of took off it was it was cycling plus and cycling weekly had that market to themselves um now you've got um cyclist uh you know ruler has kind of come back uh, as a bit more of a force or they're not really on the newsstand um you know lots of new entrants so yeah not really surprised that there was a there was a, a an available niche there i think dennis did a great job of uh, producing a of filling that gap and, and coming in there but yeah not, not really surprised that uh, the amount of interest in road cycling in the UK has sustained, uh, you know, a few launches. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I guess, Neil, coming back to this sort of move from, from print to digital, uh, um, you could say that your your career and your recent sort of uh, moves reflect that because, you you know, you spent a long time working in print and now you work for, for a purely digital title. Do you, I mean, is that, do you think that's a fair point, that it's a it's a sign of a, of a wider trend? Yeah. Yes and no. I, I mean, I could certainly see how somebody would, would assume that or um, draw that conclusion. And, and there is probably some truth to that. For me personally, having worked on a magazine for so long, um, my interests are more, you know, as the, let me, let me back up as, as web sort of came in and, and, and played a role in media and changed the role of print. And then even more so, you know, with social media and Twitter came in. I mean, when I started at Vela News, it was sort of like, okay, we're going to do straight reporting online. And then the magazine is going to be more features. And then when Twitter came along, it was like, well, you know, by the time you have a race report done for for an online story, everybody already knows who won the race. I mean, we've got live streaming of races. We've got Twitter. We've got teams with... Um, Facebook pages, all the riders posting after the race, everything. So that made the challenge of even making a race report relevant. And then, so, you know, if, if, if the website is not going to be used for straight up to the minute reporting, then what does that make the magazine? And I've always been more sort of interested in up to the minute news, breaking stories. And, and I also love the interactivity of uh, Twitter and the comments section and just sort of like everything happening in real time. So over time, I guess for me, the magazine, you know, it was, it was becoming more and more difficult to figure out exactly how to put together a magazine that was based around the sport of cycling when, you know, it's showing up in mailboxes 
two, three weeks after an event uh, has happened, how to continue to make that relevant. It was, it was a challenge. And it was something that was, it was interesting for a while. But ultimately, for me, I just gravitated more towards the, the immediate gratification of online. You know, and then also, I mean, you can certainly make an argument that the, the resources that are involved in putting a magazine together, you know, when you have uh, a photo editor and an art director, and you've got somebody trafficking all the ads, and um, yeah, as Richard mentioned earlier, all the costs involved in, in printing and distributing versus what it costs online. Yeah, just for me, the whole sort of time put in and money spent and, and when where I, where I was most interested, everything just pushed me towards online. That doesn't mean I don't think there isn't, there's no, uh, I, that doesn't mean I think there is no place for print products. But um, I mean, truthfully, just for me, you know, we used to do these, these cover mock-ups and we'd have a dozen different images and, you know, 25 different cover lines. And we'd all kind of stand around and look at the wall and, you know, doing that month in, month out, talking about font selection and all that. I just got, I just got tired of it. You know, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's not for other people, but after 14 years of that, I just wanted to write stories, hit publish share them on social media, see what the reaction was and move on to the next thing and not be thinking about things that had happened, you know, two weeks ago that people were going to be reading about in two weeks. That just wasn't where my head was at. Yeah. And, and cycling tips have obviously, you know, made a conscious decision to focus on the U S market, right. And, and decided to invest in that by hiring you and James Huang as well. They're, they're an Australian company, right? Yeah, yeah. So Second Tips was founded by Wade Wallace, who is a, a Canadian who lives in Melbourne and was recently acquired by Bike Exchange, which you may have seen the Bike Exchange logo on the, uh, yeah. the jerseys of the Orica team. Bike Exchange is a, a business that's well established in Australia and they're uh, growing into the US. So it was sort of at the same time that Cycling Tips was already looking to expand into the US, obviously to grow the audience, but also to bring in advertising revenue from U.S. brands, Bike Exchange was looking to expand into the U.S. as well. And the connection with with Orica, the Orica World Tour team, is that Jerry Ryan, who is the owner of the Orica team, is also an investor in Bike Exchange. So sort of, there was, I guess, a synergy of strategy there. And Bike Exchange is very keen on having content to reach potential. Got it. That's, that's, some, that's some good behind-the-scenes uh, yeah. I didn't know about. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess, so you, you talked earlier about, you know, the fact of ad budgets in the US, especially getting fragmented because people would split them equally between different titles. I mean, that, that must be happening even more now when, when, you know, brand managers and whatever have to decide between digital ad placements as well. I don't know, Richard, what, what's it like in the UK? Are you finding that, that brands have got more money to spend because cycling is doing well or are they you know, is it this challenge of they're just spreading their budget over more and more different outlets? I, I think it's a bit of both. You know, I think I think it is not it's not easy being a, a, a cycling media owner, whether it's a, a magazine publisher or a, or, a, or an online business. You know, the you know the challenges. And I think it's you know it's a kind of a, a true a truism across the whole of cycling that the, the growth of cycling has just meant more people coming into the market. So it's that kind of slice of the pie argument. Um, in terms of advertising budgets, I think 
I think I think there's definitely far more places for people to spend their money, whether it be uh, you know the, the the real challenge, and it's again it's a sort of a macro trend in advertising is you know that advertising is being you know the big players are Google, big players are Google and Facebook, um, uh, you know, and that's taking a lot of money from specialist media players. And I think, you know, I thought it was really interesting what Neil said about when, when you get new entrants into the market. I think there is this real tendency in the, in the cycling business for people to kind of support everybody and kind of give a, give a dollar here and a dollar there and make sure that um, everyone kind of gets a bit of the, a bit of the action. So, um, you know, that kind of works against the, the, the bigger, uh, the bigger businesses in the, in the market. So, yeah, you know, it's not it's not an easy place to uh, to operate. I don't think cycling media at the moment, despite the fact that in the UK certainly the, the market is still still in growth. Yeah, I mean that 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 idea of sort of you know a supporting new entrants and b just just kind of um, you know trying to support most publications. I mean that's certainly how we how we approached it at Canyon. You know, and we didn't have big big budgets, but yeah. e- equally you know there's you get to a point where there's no point investing anymore in one particular magazine right you sort of cover your bases do a full page ad in in four or five different ones and it doesn't need any more than that right so it's it's i I can see how it's a challenge Uh, i was going to say i think one of the most interesting kind of emerging trends on the in the digital side has been branded content and you know how that affects the the advertising revenue and you know for example you see a company like a say santa cruz or specialized and rather than doing a traditional ad buy, whether that's banner ads on a website or pages in a magazine, they will you know, send sponsored riders off to some amazing place to ride and shoot a video of it. And you know, maybe it's, it's a pro, maybe it's a Peter Sagan or you know, somebody like that uh, where their uh, audience is very interested. And it's compelling content, but it's a, it's a commercial and then they come to editorial staff, you know, like myself, and say, hey, you know, this is a, a sweet video of Peter Sagan riding his bike through X, X place, talking about what life is a pro cyclist. Would our audience find that interesting? Yeah, probably so. But essentially what's happened is the money that would have gone towards placing an ad has, has instead gone towards creating this content, which then the ask, you know, from the manufacturers, you know, would you, would you share this with your audience? So it's essentially a free commercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up branded content because it's, it was on my list to talk about next. Um, and it's, it's a challenge for sure, isn't it? Because I, I guess you've got more and more brands that are, that are really investing heavily in creating their own content, whether it's, you know, branded editorial stuff like you just talked about, or, I don't know, a, a, a brand like Rafa that just do a great job of storytelling and attracting people to their site to, you know, to own that whole experience of telling the story their way. It, it definitely presents some challenges for, for you guys on the media side. And, and you can't fault anyone for it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant plan, really. but at the same time, it's sort of like, well, we, you know, we, the editorial team, is paid salaries and that money has to come from somewhere. So the audience that we've created and cultivated in order for us to continue that, you know, we need to have some sort of compensation. And so, yeah, it's I, almost I biting, biting the hand that feeds them, right? If, if everybody just did branded content and, and there was no more need for media sites, then, you know, there wouldn't be publications that are going to test their bikes for them and, and, and so on. Right. 
Yeah, it would just basically be a bunch of Facebook pages. <laughs> have, have you, I, I guess, I'm not asking you to name any names or anything, but have you ever run into conflicts with brands over, you know, um, I don't know, from an editorial side or that sort of delicate balance of, of the whole bike testing equation? You know, it, it, it's a sort of, again, I, I come back to the Canyon example. Part of the reason why, you, you know, you, you do a, a, a full page ad in most magazines is to sort of grease the wheels a little bit of the of the whole bike testing uh, scenario, right? And I'm not saying there's certainly, you know, there aren't magazines that, 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 that tie the two, but it helps, right? It's sort of an unwritten rule. Is that fair? I, I think absolutely it is. And I think, you know, I think you've, you know, there are some markets, I think Germany may be an example of this where, you know, publishers will actually put on their rate card, you know, if you advertise, you get this number of tests. Mm-hmm. I think in the UK and probably in, true in the US market as well, that's not, it's not quite as explicit as that. But, you know, as a publisher myself, you know, I always took the view that, you know, the thing that you cannot sell is the number of stars that a, a bike gets when it gets reviewed. You know, you cannot compromise that level of editorial integrity. But, you know, of course, if, 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 you're, if you're advertiser X and you're, you're spending money with a, with a publisher, then you kind of probably have the right to say, well, look, I, you know, when you come to test a group of bikes, I want my bike included in that. And, you know, there are a lot of bike brands or a lot of brands in every part of the bike market um, you know, and having that kind of uh, relationship, I think is, you know, gives you the, like you say, it gives you the opportunity to sort of say, well, I want to be involved and I want to, I want the editorial coverage. Some people, you know, some editorial uh, people would probably think that was uh, slightly compromised, but I think it's, I think it's just commercial reality. Um, I think, you know, the commercial reality is that it's a very crowded market. And if you're being supported as an advertiser, someone is supporting you as an advertiser, then, you know, when, when something which is sort of, uh, you know, a free choice, like choosing, you know, which bikes to test, then I think that's a, that's a sensible, uh, pragmatic way to deal with, uh, deal with that kind of uh, commercial yeah, relationship. That was exactly my experience at Vela News and with Cycling Tips. I mean, Richard, you nailed it. It was never there. Were, you know, we had. A, I've always been fortunate to work uh, at, on editorial te- teams where there's a very strict separation of church and state. Um, but obviously, there's communication, and so it was never. There was never, um, you know, explicit. Please give this brand uh, a good review, and it's you know it, that, that conversation has never taken place in my career. What I have heard is, hey, if you know, if you're choosing. Say you're going to do, you know, uh, aero bike and a endurance bike and you know a climbing bike. Four bike reviews of each. Could you, you know, these two sp- uh, advertisers are supporting us. Could you p- try to work them in? Um, you know, all things being equal, if you have a list of eight brands you're trying to choose from, yeah, let's give the brand that's supporting us. That doesn't mean, you know, that's not trying to influence the review. Obviously anybody who's selling ads would like to see a positive review, but I've never been part of that conversation. It's just more, you know, why would you choose a brand that's not supporting us over a brand that is all other things being equal when you just have to make a decision? Yeah, no, that's from my, from my perspective on the other side of the fence, that that's, that's definitely how, how I saw it. Do, do you think there's anything in the way that brands, the, the way that they sort of, you know, manage their relationships with, with, um, with advertisers and, and editorial teams? Is there anything you think that they should do better or, um, you know, would, would they get more value out of the relationship by working in a, in a different way, that sort of thing? 
That's a tough one. I mean, truthfully, that's not something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, I'm gonna let I'm gonna defer to Richard and I, let me give that a thought for a moment because truthfully, I, I've always just been more focused on getting the content onto the page or on, onto the site. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the only thing that I'd say is that I think you know, and, and most I think most brands do get this or brand managers get this that you know the editorial is incredibly powerful and reviews are incredibly powerful. And I've been. I've been amazed when I've kind of overheard or been party to conversations where people are sort of saying, well, look, I can't send you a bike because it's going to cost me, you know, a hundred pounds to ship it to you. And, you know, then it'll be a secondhand bike. And I'm thinking, you know, that, that review, if that, if that bike gets a decent review, that's worth tens of thousands of pounds uh, of, of sales. And, you know, I, I think most, most brand owners, most brand managers get that, but, so totally. you know, I can't believe anybody would even would even question that. To be honest, <laughs> we, you know, you, we can't send you a bike because you know it's too expensive. You know, wow, you know that's just a. a, a they they they've obviously never looked at the rate card for um, a full page ad in a magazine and 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 you know equated what a full page bike review is worth, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, editorial, you know, time and time and again, when you do, you know, readership surveys or whatever, you know, the editorial is unsurprisingly, editorial is incredibly powerful and, you know, good review scores sell bikes. Yeah. The guys who've won, you know, bike of the year with Cycling Plus over the years, you know, those reviews sell bikes. Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, this is a topic that I'm, I've got lined up for a future episode to really you know, lift a little, a little bit on the whole, the whole area of, uh, of bike testing in the media, because it is a bit of a, a dark art. And, you know, I always laugh at these 10 out of 10 ratings, you know, cycling weekly are a terrible example. There was a, a, a tire test or something last year and they had, I don't know, of five products, they gave three of them eight out of 10. It's like, well, that's, you know, that's not helping consumers decide at all, is it? <laughs> but anyway, I, I could go on on that. Neil, another one for you. I, again, this is related to the rise of digital. You know, you've spent you've spent your career as a as a proper journalist, right? You've worked in print magazines. You know, are you finding now that with the move towards digital, it's very easy for you know for anybody to set themselves up as a as a writer, as a content creator, as a photographer, and, and you know, does it make life harder for for real journalists? Yeah, it's a good question. I think on the photography side, it has made life more difficult uh for some photographers i've you know you you hear examples of people who want to get into photography and they'll go and shoot events and they'll put the images out there for free to get their you know to get their name out there to have their work published and for people who are you know longtime shooters guys like graham watson or casey gibson you know who have a rate and it's like well how how can they compete with that you know they they're established and um, I've heard stories about that. I'm trying to think on the on the written side. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, just example today, uh, we published a story on cycling tips from a guy named Daniel Ostenek, who is a British guy who has uh, a blog. And essentially, he will write a story and pitch it to me and say, if you want this, you know, you can have it for X amount, or if you don't want it, I'll put it on my blog. And, you know, I don't think that's working necessarily for him right now as a full-time occupation, but for me personally, as an editor, it's actually 
quite helpful because um, I have this, it's an option. And great content, right? <laughs> no, no, I mean, we pay him. We, we do pay him. Oh, okay. Um, okay. But I, I guess the same could be said for somebody that had, that had written an article and was offering it to you for free. It's, it's, that's a delicate balance for you, right? Because on the one hand, great, you get, you get great free content for your website that you can put ads around and you can monetize, but uh, does it cheapen the sort of journalistic craft, so to speak? Sure. And, you know, there aren't too many examples of free content, uh, at Vela or cycling trips that I've been involved with. That's not to say that it hasn't happened, but um, usually when that's happened, it's either been, for example, like a book excerpt, you mm-hmm. know, um, at cycling tips, we're going to run an excerpt from a Velo press book uh, next week. So that's, you know, essentially they're sort of, they have kind of, they're not, we're not paying for it, but they have a commercial interest in that. So it's, 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 it's editorial, but it's also a, 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 a it's, it's advertising, right? Yeah. Marketing. Yeah. Um, and then we've done some, you know, we've, we've not paid for content a few times when it was sort of like an editorial. I mean, when the, the cyclist died uh, at Gamwevelgem and there was all this talk about uh, motos and too many motos and race photographers, you know, Casey Gibson, he actually sent me an email about an article we'd written written and posted uh sort of refuting about you know the role of race motos and i I wrote casey and i said look casey you know this this long email could basically be an editorial on our site how would you feel about that and he said yeah go ahead so i you know we didn't pay him for that but that was something that he just sort of wanted to get off his chest but it was more like a letter to the editor but generally we do try to pay for content and that you know there's a few reasons for that one is that you know we feel good about it. We're sort of supporting the people that are uh, the voices on our site, but also it, it enables us to demand a certain level of quality. I mean, when you're not paying for content, you're not really in a position to then send you know, as an editor, an email back to a contributor and say, this needs to be fixed. I need you to do this. You know, could you ask these questions and call these people? It's sort of like you just take what you get. And so you know, when you put a price tag on it, then you have a, you're in a position to, to ask for quality. Yeah. Do, do, I guess to both of you, do you think there is, is there any challenge with the digital world where it becomes more about generating traffic rather than, you know, editorial integrity, so to speak? I guess some yeah. people might call it clickbait, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that's a, you know, that is, that is an issue. And I think, you know, there are, there are, I think it's about the editorial, it's about editorial quality, about what the actual site produces, but, you know, things like Outbrain and the, those kind of skim link type ads that you see at the bottom of many websites, you know, there are, you know, that's quite, it's quite a kind of intrusive experience on some websites. And, you know, I've, I've been at the, you know, I've been at the sort of decision point on some of that stuff, you know, some of it is really kind of um, quite lucrative, but it, it, it does feel like a very short term play and it's, you know, it's damaging the the brand values of your website and, um, you know, irritating the long-term loyal users uh, for the sake of a of a, of a quick uh, a quick win. So yeah, it's a it's a you know it's a tough world. But you know, the ad revenues on 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 digital are, are you know are the main revenue source, and there isn't a cover price to prop up uh, revenues. So uh, you know, publishers have to make those tough decisions. You've got to pay the bills at the end of the day, haven't you? And and you know, going back to your point about free content, I mean, I know from you know speaking you know without without being uh sort of spoiling commercial secrets but you know bike radar and cycling news you know had really very substantial editorial budgets you know they're very expensive sites to produce you know with some very well-paid contributors and 
you know, expensive travel bills and photography bills, etc. So, you know, that that that's high quality content. Uh, you know, uh, uh, at least the equal of, of of many print magazines. Yeah, and uh, you know, the world the world of online, the the barriers to entry are incredibly low. It doesn't cost anything to some, for someone to you know launch a Facebook page and or start a YouTube channel or um, you know create a blog is not is not a, a big deal. So more you know, democratic than it ever was. And, you know, that's a good thing and a bad thing. You know, it creates, creates great challenges for the kind of existing media players, for the, the guys who've got the big offices and the, the big salaries. Um, but, it, you know, at the same time, you know, it's good because it brings in lots of new people and fresh faces and some great, you know, some great content. Exactly. And I think there's, there's a great example on, on this side of the Atlantic. If you look at a site like The Radivist, it is, you know, it's sort of blown up in recent years from one guy with a blog to being a legit player in the media landscape. And it's, it's you know, it's one of the most high trafficked cycling websites out there. Yeah, I think the other thing with the with the blogs is, you know, from somebody who has been in the editor role and has hired, it's a bit of a proving ground. You know, I mean, it's a way for people to stop most, I would say there's a high percentage of people who run a blog about something they're passionate about that would ideally like to make a living doing that so you know it's a way it's it's a living resume and it's a way to sort of figure out who who's doing a good job and you know who would you like to include in your editorial staff so i don't you know is it's is it competition maybe but it's also um it's an opportunity to sort of select the best that are out there yeah good way to look at it um i guess that the the last thing i wanted to talk about before we wrap things up is is to talk about video specifically I know, Richard, you were involved in launching uh, Bike Channel in the UK. So I was, I was keen to hear a little bit more about that, who's behind it, how it's doing, that sort of thing. And then yeah. I guess I also wanted to get both your thoughts on, on, on GCN and how that's blown up recently. Yeah, it's good. I mean, you know, Bike Channel, um, I think most people may be aware of what Bike Channel is. It's a, it was a satellite, a satellite TV channel that launched uh, in Italy about 2012 quite successful in the italian market you know it's a very interesting uh, it's italy's kind of despite being the kind of home of cycling in many ways and uh, you know the, the the local cycling media is actually not very competitive there are a few magazines and a, and a, and a handful of websites um so cycling channel kind of launched into that and kind of uh, quite quickly became the kind of market leader um so i helped uh the italian guys come into the uk market December last year, um, launched on Sky and Virgin, um, and now on FreeSat. It's a, it's a more challenging market, you know. As, as, as Neil knows, you know the English language market, media market is is, is far more competitive. But you know, I think the time is the time is right for you know. There's enough interest in cycling now. You know, there is a there is a TV channel for for lots of lots of sort of specialist and in inverted commas areas. And I think, you know, I think there's enough interest in cycling. Um, you know, GCN, like you say, is a, you know, is an example of that as well, of that trend towards, um, you know, cycling, just, just having enough critical mass to sustain, um, you know, sort of uh, different media, uh, media that we haven't seen previously. Can you tell us a bit about, like, who's behind Bike Channel? Has it got a big media company behind it? No, not at all. It's, a, it's, it's primarily a, a couple of guys who were in the TV market in Italy who, um, who just sort of had the, had the idea um, uh, to launch a specialist channel. They, they already had a, a, a wedding channel, actually, uh, and launched uh, launched Bike Channel because they were interested in cycling. They've got investors 
um, to help them with the international expansion. But those people are sports rights kind of people rather than uh, rather than rather than media companies, if you like. Mm-hmm. Do you, that's interesting. You said the sports rights people behind it. When, when do you think we're going to see the likes of Bike Channel and GCN showing live racing? It's a good question. I mean, you know, sports rights or, or TV rights for cycling are a whole, you know, that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? But um, yeah, yeah, I think, it, I think it's difficult because the amount of money that, you know, that, the, you know, the, clearly the, the big race, the only race that really counts at the moment is the Tour de France. The, the cost of, cost of screening that is, you know, is incredibly expensive. And I guess it will get more expensive the more times Chris Froome wins it. Um, it's certainly in the UK. Um, yeah, racing sports rights are definitely something that, you know, the bike, chan- bike channel has got sports rights. It's got a number of classics races and mountain bike content, etc. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, the, it is the hook that gets people to watch television channels. You know, it's what we've seen in, in, in football and the way that the way that various media companies have used sports rights as a, as a hook. So, yeah, it will happen. Yeah, it's, it's ironic. Again, it's something of a double-edged sword, isn't it? As as cycling gets more popular, it's actually going to be harder to, to show live content because the value of those rights will go up. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, one of the big challenges for GCN is um, they've built that audience, but um, you know, that audience wants to see moving pictures Mm -hmm. uh, and not still images uh, from bike races. You know, I mean, you look at the Tour de France and, you know, the biggest race of the year and, and GCN, I believe, uh, doesn't get credentialed as the Tour de France um, because they're seen as a broadcaster. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the, the kind of footage, you know, the kind of um, coverage that GCN is doing from the Tour de France is, is like bus tours and rest day stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's only, it's one month out of the year and GCN does a lot more than race coverage and a lot more than the Tour de France, but still, you know, as an authoritative um, media outlet, you know, that's sort of the expectation. And so, you know, that's that's going to be a challenge for them. Yeah, I, I I hope they manage to figure it out because I think it would be a really great fit. And it was you know it was one of the things back in the day when when Cycling TV launched, like great idea, amazing concepts. Just the execution of it, I felt was never really very good, and they struggled to 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 bring together enough rights for it to be a really compelling channel. You know, I think GCN has obviously got the audience and they've got uh, some substantial resources behind it. Hopefully, there should be better place to 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 do something about that. I think that just this is a, a topic for another podcast, but I think that in, in a much bigger sense, you know, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in the sport of cycling right now, you know, with ASO and UCI and um, the Wanda group in China and RCS. And I think there's a lot of people who are kind of waiting to see which way the power dynamic shifts, because with that comes uh, TV rights and revenues and I think the story hasn't been fully told yet. I mean, this whole idea that possibly, you know, the ASO or some other, other group could just form a cycling league as you have with, you know, with football or with um, the NFL, you know, whereas right now it's just a bunch of different race organizers, each putting on their events and the UCI sort of governing the sport, you know, could we, you know, the, basically the idea that, you know, Oleg Tinkov and others have proposed and I think there are a lot of people that, you know, what, how might that play out? I don't think anybody wants to make a huge investment into securing TV rights when the whole house of cards could come falling down in the next 18 months. So I think it's also, uh, Neil, about the fact that 
you know, if you were going to spend a, a, a million dollars acquiring the rights to the Giro d'Italia or whatever, you know, you would need to find advertising revenues to support that. Um, you know, and, and, and if you can't find sponsors and teams can't find um, or, or events can't find, uh, you know, a proper commercial model, then, you know, what hope for the media owners, really? Yeah. Good, good, good point. I guess we're almost out of time. I, I, I suppose final point. I'm, I'm just curious to get both of your take on, you know, what's this going to look like in five years' time? What, 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 what are going to be the big changes that are going to happen? Oh, you go first, Richard. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I don't know is the answer, but I, I guess you know, the, the, the trends, you know, the trends that we've seen, whatever, in the last five, ten years, you know, social media, you know, social media didn't exist ten, well, ten years ago it did exist, but only just. But you know, social media will just continue, continue to be, you know, the the, the, the driving force. I think, you know, and I mean, when I say social media, I mean YouTube as well as as well as Facebook and Twitter, etc. So I think, you know, everybody's, everybody's a media player now. All, every brand, every athlete, every event has got a, a, a media presence of their own. Every retailer has got a media presence of their own. So I think, you know, I think that kind of fragmentation and democratization um, is just going to continue. Where, where it all leads, I'm not entirely sure because, you know, we've, as lots of your questions have kind of touched on, Alex, you know, the, the kind of the business model behind funding um you know cycling media is you know is changing rapidly and it you know that you know at the moment it's all about ad funding and it's and it's not particularly robust so um you know where that all settles down i'm not sure but yeah it's more change i think is the uh, the one certainty we need we need we need twitter to buy some live cycling rights yeah they're getting into nfl and uh, and mlb over here <laughs> yeah and I would imagine it would, compared to what they're spending on those, uh, cycling would probably seem like a bargain. Yeah. <laughs> I think my, my only, the only thing I would add to what Richard said, I mean, you know, when I think about five years from now, I just, especially coming off the Tour de France, having just ended, you know, that is the biggest event in cycling. And ASO holds a lot of control and power there, you know, in the, on the media side, as Richard said earlier, I think, you know, Facebook and Google have a lot of power there. So, you know, five years from now, I still imagine Facebook and Google and ASO really sort of having control and, and holding the cards when it comes to cycling media, you know, in a very general sense. Good. Okay. Well, listen, we're, we're out of time. So I want to thank you both for, uh, for participating and, 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 you know, lending your, your expert opinions and, and sharing some good insights on this debate. So thanks, Neil. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Richard. Thank you very much. That's a wrap for this month's episode. As ever, I'd love to hear any feedback on the topic we discussed today, either on Twitter at AJM Palmer or in the comments section of this post on cyclingbusinesspodcast.com. Until next month. Music